Okay, so uh, you just came back from TJ Maxx. Yeah. So is it like working the produce section at Meyer, where uh, every time you get a coat, you like you feel it for any bruising or like weird squishy parts before you put it on the rack? Like it's got to be in. No, I, it's usually just me getting yelled at by fifty to sixty year old people for not being as smart as they think I should be. Oh my god. <laughs> Hi everyone, and welcome to the only writing podcast you'll ever need. Today's episode features the producer Garrett and the director here of the Writing Center, Bill the Herder, as they talk about the genre of true crime podcasts. I hope you enjoy. Bill, how are you? How how have you been? This has been a scramble to get like all of all of the balls in the air. I'm not a good juggler to begin with. I'm not very coordinated. I have horrible death perception, and uh, I'm not very nimble. But today has been a real test of that. Not today in particular, but all week. But yeah, yeah uh, it's been like, oh, here's a presentation. Now squeeze in some lunch. Now do a podcast recording session with Garrett. Now let's <laughs> now let's dive into uh, a staff meeting. Then sprint across campus yeah, to gonna... make that staff meeting. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that, it's it's been like that uh, all week. And that's pretty much what next week's going to be. Because next week, we're going to IWCA. We're going to go to Vancouver. Um, the International Writing Center uh, Association Conference. And I'm Not really... the International Window Cleaners Association. Exactly. Remember that. Exactly. Do not Google IWCA. Make sure to actually write out the whole name. Uh, also, if you try to look for the IWCA app, you will you will discover the International Window Cleaners Association app instead of the International Writing Center Association Conference app, which is another thing I found. Um, I don't know I don't know what the International Window Cleaners Association Conference will be like this year. I imagine that there are more windows than writing centers in the world, and they get dirty. Do you right? think there's more doors or wheels? Door. <laughs> <laughs> Are there more doors or wheels in the world? I don't know. Uh, uh, lots of cars, they have four doors, but they also have four wheels. So I don't know what to do with that. And like, we have to really qualify. Like, do we count like the wheels on like one of the conveyor belt things? Because there's thousands of them fuckers yeah. on those. Yeah. Like, yeah. What am I supposed school to bus, count? School bus is technically like a two door car. It's like a sports car. It's got two doors, one in the back, one on the side. Four wheels, though. Four wheels. Yeah. Maybe more wheels because it's like a and double if you axle. And if they, you then add in the window cleaners aspect, there's so many windows so on the bus. So many windows. <laughs> so many more windows. And I Not can a writing center on the bus, I can though. only imagine <laughs> you go to this conference and every single presentation is, these windows are dirty. What are we going to do? <laughs> Doing groundbreaking research on how to clean windows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the inundation that the world has of True crime podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you heard it here, folks. Today, me and Garrett, in the span of a few minutes, we're going to solve the mystery of why... Uh, why there are so many. True crime podcasts, why they are so popular, why people love them so much. And, uh, and then also, which ones you should listen to, depending on what what kind of, like, personality you have. This is a yeah. BuzzFeed test yeah. right now. Yeah, what bag of potato chips are you? Fair. So, obviously, one of the most famous true crime podcast in the world is one of arguably the first famous ones and that's mm -hmm. my favorite murder it's oh, not yeah. the first oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. N by far not the first true crime podcast but it might be one of the first that really like made true crime podcasts it, the the fad that they are it really wired into some something happening in the culture you know what i mean right yeah so as the resident millennial <laughs> <laughs> i'm a generation b millennial okay okay but 
you are a little more versed with my favorite murder than I am as the Gen Z member of this podcast right yeah, now. Yeah. What do you, how do you see their strategy? Like what, just kind of describe their strategy to me. I think, I think it's very culturally complicated. Like you, you proposed doing this, this conversation today, doing this recording. Mm -hmm. And, uh, this morning I was sitting down with my notepad and I was just kind of like seeing where my thoughts flowed. Right. And, uh, like there, there's a lot going on in the true crime comedy murder podcast. There's so much there right. that seems to like it all kind of layers onto itself in terms of rhetorical effectiveness and why it might be uh, picked up and resonated with so strongly in our culture. Right. Right. Um, and I, I guess so that I can keep my thoughts organized whether or not this actually plays out this way in the recording. I don't know. But uh, I'll just sort of like briefly describe how I got like associated with true crime podcast with true crime podcast like what was my exposure to them is and it not just because you're a millennial no it's not <laughs> I, I was actually no i i actually thought that podcasts were kind of like ted talks it was something that white people consumed so that they could feel like they learned something without actually learning something okay but now that you say that podcasts and ted talks live in the same corner of my brain yeah pretty much right right <laughs> uh so i didn't pay too much attention to them actually it right. wasn't until i was in grad school that uh i met somebody in class uh her name is sarah potter she's great hey sarah friend of the pod i don't know if she's actually listening but i hope she is um she mentioned in class something about my favorite murder right because she had a long commute all the way from marquette to houghton that's like 100 miles it's a long ways. So you can imagine she was podcasting hard at this time in her life, yeah. right? And she mentioned in class about this My Favorite Murder podcast. And she said that she was really into it at the time. Right. So I just sort of like tucked that into the back of my brain. And I mentioned it to somebody else. And they started listening to it. And they kind of complained about it. They're like, oh, these people, they just kind of like talk about nothing for like a half hour before they even start talking about crime. So, I mean, why does anybody listen to this? Like, that person didn't really get it. And it wasn't until... I found myself in an airport mm -hmm. coming back from a conference in Houston that I found myself like actually listening to my favorite murder. And uh, I was just trying to like fill the time. And that led me to this other podcast called Last Podcast on the Left. Right. Right. Um, and then I started listening to Last Podcast. I remember the moment I was sitting there and one of the podcast people on Last Podcast Henry Zabrowski, he put on this funny voice of like an old woman and he made me, he actually made me laugh in the airport lounge. <laughs> he actually made me laugh. Um, and it was funny. And that's kind of what drew me in. I felt like I was almost being social at a time in my life where I was too busy working and, and being a student and, uh, writing myself and teaching. I, I was too busy to actually be social with anybody. And yet I got to have this sort of simulated social experience of being around a conversation that happened, you know, with people right. who did have a lot of energy and uh, did have time to like uh, do these recordings, but also do some research. Right. I think that's a really big point that you made about like the My Favorite Murder kind of strategy mm -hmm. is I also came across My Favorite Murder at a time where I was incredibly lonely and also <laughs> was driving hours upon hours to get to certain places. Yeah. So for me sitting in a car alone having to drive the nine hours where i was going having them like playing in the background it honestly didn't have to be true crime but having mm -hmm. like 
the idea that I felt like I could be a part of a conversation that I didn't have to participate in yeah. was really comforting in some yeah. way. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's so much going on in this. I think at, at the most base level where a lot of people like interact with the podcasts like my, my favorite murder or last podcast in the life for the first time, I think on a certain level, it, it comes in as like filling a sort of social vacancy. Right. Right. And we can probably guess that podcasts have probably become um, more readily consumed during the pandemic when we were right. all highly isolated. Right. Right. Um, I would say that you are right in thinking that my favorite murder leans further into that sort of social chit chat aspect right. than a lot of other podcasts. Right. Right. And I believe that element really, really is important for them forming like a community. Right. Around the podcast itself. You know right. what I mean? Um, but I would say at its, at its most base level, um, the true crime podcast as a genre is telling a story. Right. Right. And we tell stories as social beings in order for us to theorize about the world, make understanding about... And also just kind of like, you know, it makes connections between two people. That's like... Oh, yeah. When I found My Favorite Murder, I came across it like probably 2018. This was like sec second semester of my freshman year of college. And they had been already doing the podcast for two years by that point. And... Mm -hmm because of the way my brain works, I had to start from the beginning. I could not, I could not pick up where they were two years later. I had to start from the beginning. And if you really go back and listen to like their first episodes, mm -hmm. the way they're telling each other, those like true crime stories, it's very clear that they're trying to create a relationship between the two of them. Yeah. It really feels like two friends like hanging out. Right. And, you know, they're, they're, they're catching, they're catching up at the top of every episode about what's been going on in their lives over the, right. the last week or so. And it's, it's in, in like a way that's part of the like charm of that, that yeah. sort of true crime realm. If you are there to try to try and like really learn about the facts of a case, mm -hmm. Georgia and Karen might not be the two best people for no, you. No, they, are, they aren't experts. No. They aren't journalists. Uh, they aren't forensic scientists. No. They're people who read the Wikipedia page for you. The Murderpedia page, thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but, but you know, in telling these true crime stories at, at the most base level, they're telling a story that people can essentially learn from, whether or not that information is actually like useful in their lives. Right. But that's why we tell stories, right? We tell one social connection, yes, but there's also the vague sense that you could learn something that could help you operate and move through the world. I right? think that's, that's like my biggest takeaway from starting like because my favorite murder was my first podcast that i ever started listening to and now as i sit in this room in my little kingdom of podcastum yeah i, I only listen to podcasts so they yeah. they're it's their fault that i'm here yeah. but um <laughs> the one thing i really did take from them was like this weird self-awareness in the world that I could be murdered at any point. Like that was my first takeaway right, as, an, right. as like a 19 year old kid. I'm like, I could be murdered and at any point. And these people are teaching me how to not get murdered. And hearing the details of their stories might, I don't know, in your mind, you might be thinking, oh, it'll give me some clue about how I cannot get abducted. Right. You know, or I can spot a serial killer in action. Or like Karen, Karen Stick of like the, 
how she loves the stories of like barely escaping. I can't remember which one. Oh, she the always, I survived one. I survived. Yeah. She loves those. And that has always brought me to like thinking when I'm listening to those stories, I'm like, this is how I would survive in this yeah, situation. You're going to have to cut off all your arms and legs. Right. That's the only way it's, through. It's, and I'm going to have a great documentary when I survive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think back to go, going back to one of my other kind of quick points is like, they were so popular so quick but mm. they also had a lot of friends in the industry already. And oh, yeah, yeah. They, they emerged learned, from the L.A. film industry. Yeah. Right. And they learned how to podcast from other podcasters, which then, at least for listeners like me, it exposed me to, like, these vast parts of the field mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. they had come into contact with. So I came – I started listening to the dollop, like, the the history podcast because oh, yeah. Karen dated one of the, one of the hosts and, at And they point. also – they pushed that, like, all the time on their podcast. Right. And then also, like, this is a much more recent development and it has really nothing to do with the content of their podcast, but them starting that podcast network. Ah, yes. They are a super good research resource for podcasters that are starting and trying to make yeah. it in the field because you're already coming into, like, contact with a podcast that has hundreds of millions of listeners. Exactly. And now you can grow your podcast from under that umbrella. And then as you can see, some of those podcasts will leave and go out on their own mm -hmm. because of the the start that they got from Karen and Georgia, essentially. So I think there's, <laughs> there's also another layer to the My Favorite Murder phenomenon, okay? Right. And that's that, okay, I, I, I want us to think a moment for like, uh, back to our childhoods, thinking about Disney movies, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, do you remember the Disney villains? Yes, absolutely. Okay, who is your favorite Disney villain? The bad one from Wreck-It Ralph. I don't I don't even know that movie. I don't even know. Okay. Like, if you said Jafar to me, that would have been my child. <laughs> I think Maleficent, the one from Sleeping Beauty. Okay, wow. Oh, that's that's an old one, right? Yeah. Um, Lindsay Ellis, and, and listeners, if you don't know who Lindsay Ellis is, she's a media critic. She has a pretty strong presence on YouTube. She's pretty cool. Um, she has an interesting uh, analysis up on YouTube about how Disney villains are quite often queer coded. And mm -hmm. yeah, and, and you know, it may be narrative wise, that is why they have been so maligned, right? right. Um, so I think we do have tendencies in our culture to identify with the, the villain, right? Um, I think Star Cruiser is an excellent example of this. <laughs> Where Disney said, oh, you can choose. You can pick whatever. You can fight for the resistance in this role play game, in this this hotel bunker that we built that lasts 48 hours, right? Or you can fight for the empire, right? right? So it's like, oh, you get to choose. You can either be resistance that's fighting something so vague we don't even know what the resistance is for, or you can uh, represent fascism. It's your choice, <laughs> Right. In the words of Sylvia Plath, every woman loves a fascist. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> it's the shiny boots that get you every time. So <laughs> that reference was for Dr. Daniel Cook. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so we can see how, you know, a lot of the time we are compelled by narratives where uh, the story is very much driven by the bad person. Right. Right. And, and partially that may be because, yes, we're learning from their bad acts and we want to see them get their comeuppance. Uh, and we want to learn how they could be stopped. And then other, another small aspect of that is probably that we identify with somebody who is in some way maligned, right? Right. Because we don't always fit in perfectly uh, in, in whatever culture we, we embody, right. right? So I think that's also an important component of this. 
So I, I do want to like touch on a couple of the other podcasts that I'm aware of to sort of like note some some differences between My Favorite Murder and what they right. do and how these other podcasts approach uh, their craft. Right. So that maybe that'll give us a bit of a clue of, of how My Favorite Murder is even more rhetorically uh, effective. Right. right. So the first thing that I wanted to mention was last podcast on the left, of course. Right. And the first thing you'll notice about that is that they are not starting each episode with a long drawn out segment of catch up between all right. of the hosts uh, about everything that happened. There's far too many week. for them to do right. that anyways. Yeah, there's like three. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what, what they what they do do is they go into far more grisly detail. Like it, it's very much like like you're watching like Clive Barker's Hellraiser. Like there's right. lots they, of like they don't. They don't hit you with like a like this is too graphic for us to really talk about. Look it up yourself, like Karen and Georgia would exactly, often do. Right? Yeah, they they will brutalize you and your imagination. Right? right. They will they will really uh, zero in and labor over the most disgusting, disturbing details of crimes. Right. Right. Um, and they even have a segment where if it gets if it's going to get really bad, they call it a gold star segment. Like if you make it through, gold star to you. You made it through. Look yeah. how tough you are, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they were actually doing stuff before My Favorite Murder. And, right. Yeah. And, and I think uh, I've heard them remark at one time or another that uh, they were doing it before Karen and Georgia, and yet Karen and Georgia were the ones who got super famous. Right. right. Um, and I think the important aspect that is missing there, of course, is that chit-chattiness, but also they're embodying a sort of uh, white male middle class aesthetic and white male middle class um way of speaking right 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 it's it's man talk we're going to talk about right. the disgusting stuff we're going to come at you fast and hard right one of my favorites that is a little more along the same lines of um last podcast on the left is true crime garage with the captain and nick i just started listening to them this morning yeah. they are they're great because i'm truly into that like I want to know the facts of the case and like really the effect it had mm -hmm. on the the region. I don't just want to know the story yeah. and they're really good at that. But one, they recently redid their episodes on the long Island serial killer, mm -hmm. or I can't remember if I had listened to an episode about them from someone else. I'm pretty sure it was true crime garage that did it, but I re I went back to their, the first time they covered long Island serial killer, which is I think their fourth and fifth or third and fourth episode mm -hmm. um, ever being done. And it goes to that point that you said they're adopting like that white male middle class like they're, rhetoric. Like the whole premise, the whole aesthetic of it is that they're in a garage, garage and they're slugging beers. beers. Yeah. Yeah. But the first time you listen, because now if as someone who's well versed in the true crime world, you can't use the word prostitute. You're not allowed mm -hmm. to use that mm -hmm. word anymore. Mm -hmm. You have to use words like sex worker or something like that, because it is not only more politically correct, but it's also a lot, a lot more encompassing of that sort of field. Yeah. But in that first iteration, they're talking like two bros. Mm -hmm. They're actually brothers, fun fact. I don't want to put, tear down the fourth <laughs> wall for you, but they are actually brothers. Um, but they they refer to the women that are being murdered by the Long Island serial killer as prostitutes. And I remember the captain makes one really gross comment mm -hmm. about like them. But now I'm listening to them. They're on like their 600th in some episodes. They've been doing it. I'm almost as long as Karen and Georgia or longer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But those comments don't exist anymore because they've learned from like working in the field, but it kind of feeds into that. Like early on that 
intended audience for True Crime Garage was probably just yeah. white bros. Yeah. And now they're much wider. They're encompassing a lot, a larger like audience by understanding how they're using the words. And, and they may also, you know, as broadcasters, be gaining a better sense of how, I mean, what effects their their particular content may have right. on the culture, right? Right. Um, so, I mean, you know, trying to uh, interrogate the inherent power in your language is right. always great. And, and I'm glad to hear that they are shifting their, their language usage around that term. Yeah. Right. So this sort of leads into the question of do true, do true crime podcasts glorify the killers, right? So I have like two sorts of answers. There's a real distinct point about halfway through, because as someone who listened to about three and a half years of backlog for Karen and Georgia, there's a distinct point where they notice that they're doing that yeah. and they mention it. Yeah. And they're like, we need to be more aware of this. We need to stop giving so much to them mm -hmm. from the beginning. Mm -hmm. The captain and Nick on True Crime Garage knew that they didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. That was their whole entire point. But it's a tough question because some podcasts do it and they do it effectively where they're still telling the correct story. But I don't know. Others don't. It's kind of. Well, I can I can share the, you know, listening to last podcast on the left. Um, I think I think they're pretty explicit in setting their show up as a disruption of glorifying the killers. Right. At least that's how they've they've sort of presented themselves and probably what they've convinced themselves of. That disruption is taking the form of humor, right? Right. Um, and humor, I think, in My Favorite Murder works a little bit differently. But in the case of Last Podcast on the Left, they need the humor to disrupt the mythos around the the perpetrator the, the killer right? as someone who's like infallible and like right some some mad genius some right. some evil mastermind right i think one of the cool ways that true crime garage will often um not like try to glorify the killer is instead of often using their like moniker they'll mm -hmm. use their real name they're oh, like yes, yes like if you're like if we're talking about dennis raider they won't call him btk mm -hmm. they will call him his name and often like following like that same train of thought of like the captain used to say a lot of like the gross manly shit mm -hmm. in in true crime garage now he's the one offering sometimes he just offers the stupidest comments his brother is really the one that has like the real brain power <laughs> behind like what they're doing but he'll offer these comments where he just calls like the perpetrator like a dumb shithead yeah. and things like that yeah. and that's his way of just being like you're yeah you aren't being glorified for yeah. what you did yeah. you're so, just stupid you know it works similar Similarly, you right. know, in last podcast uh, and in a lot of true crime, true crime comedy, uh, you need to make fun of the villain. Right. You know, that, that's that's the safe place that you can place the humor um, or you can place it on the situation. But you really must avoid uh, making fun of the victim or the survivor. Right. 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 Uh, and I think last podcast uh, is very uh, specific and artful and, and skillful in, in, right. in performing that. Um my favorite murder they use humor in a little bit of a of a different way uh, i think they're using it as a way to distance themselves from the content so uh what makes my favorite murder successful in part is that uh in using comedy you are shielding yourself from emotional trauma 
and you are shielding yourself from uh, the villain's logic in the situation. Right. You know, uh, quite often when we tell a joke, we're pointing out how something doesn't make sense and we are emotionally decentering ourselves so that we can sort of look above right. <laughs> abstractly and laugh at it, right? And I think that's uh, in part what their humor is accomplishing there. Right. I think their humor is much more like, I'm awkwardly uncomfortable with this story, but I'm still going to tell it. Mm -hmm. And this is my way of coping with how uncomfortable I am with the story I'm telling. Exactly. Exactly. Sometimes it's nervous laughter as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I would say that MFM, uh, as you pointed out, you know, they, they, they are more assertive in using the victims and survivors' names. Right. And trying to bring them more to the surface, more than the uh, perpetrator. Right. Right. Uh, and in that sense, uh, it is a disruption of, of the normal true crime dynamic where we put um, Jeffrey Dahmer on a on a on, on some a sort pedestal. of mythical pedestal. Right. right. Um, That's also something very interesting that I've kind of come to realize about the entire genre of true crime. For some of these really, really famous serial killers, they have the least on them in the true crime podcast realm, people like Jeffrey Dahmer and sometimes even people like Ted Bundy mm -hmm. will be completely ignored because there's already been so much said about them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like, at least in like true crime garages sense, or maybe another podcast I listen to morbid, they'll devote multiple parts to some of these larger stories, these, oh, yeah. these bigger killers. Yeah. But then they'll give a one part story on Ted Bundy because they're like, why give him Ted four parts? when he's got documentary after documentary after ID or investigation discovery special after investigation discovery because special. Because I, th I think a lot of people already are pulled in by the comedy and the community aspect of these podcasts. And so then they start binging them, you know? Right. And it's like, well, what's your new contribution then? You know, yeah, we have to do Ted Bundy, but there's nothing really new I can do with it. No. So uh, we're only going to dedicate one little piece. We're just going to let Zach Efron play him in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will point out that my favorite murder uh, isn't perfect in disruption, right? No, they're not. Um, uh, over the summer, they did an interview with somebody they already did an episode on for one of their I Survived episodes. Okay? Right. And what this woman told them was that uh, they should really have the survivors and, and the victims come on and tell their own stories. Because hearing right. somebody else tell your story can be re-traumatizing. Right. Right? And it's it, it's also a, an unfair power differential. I right? think that's that highlights like a, a larger issue in the true crime genre, especially when you're discussing cases that maybe are still fresh in the mind. One, one example that comes to my mind, and although it's a bit more of a positive example, is the Delphi murders. The, the murder isn't positive, Garrett. That was a great, worst time to, to, to say the murder. <laughs> but True Crime Garage since the murders happened in 2017 have covered it every year mm -hmm. because it's very close to Ohio where they're from. It happened in Indiana and they are personally attached to this story, trying to help this get solved. But often when true crime, like true crime podcasts are covering some of these more recent stories or these stories with like living victims mm -hmm. or living victims, families, mm -hmm. you're kind of profiting off of someone else's, trauma absolutely in in a way yeah and i think that there are certain podcasts that do 
a really good job of handling that and making mm -hmm. it very clear that they know that they're like that this is impactful to someone else and and i can i can actually suggest two of those um one is, is called tenfold more wicked which is also on the exact same exactly right podcast right. network uh and that it show is run by a journalist who actually goes through the effort of interviewing these family members around right. the crimes right uh and then to take that one step further that same uh podcaster has a different show called buried bones right where she's meeting with an actual forensic science scientist who worked on many many cases and solved a lot of them right and they're working on uh talking about historic cases that that are long long gone like right and, like nobody remembers these right i think that's also kind of as again someone who's now had invested years into this genre and bounced around a bunch of different podcasts the episodes i like most are the victorian murders because i'm like there's no real person that's genuinely being re-traumatized yeah. by hearing this story yeah. and everybody loves a good trench coat yeah. yeah everyone everyone loves hearing about an 1800s murder yeah. i always sit there and i'm like wondering how was this ever solved in the 1800s like how did this ever get solved and listening to those stories is always you know so exactly how me. they were solved with a great big magnifying glass and you mm -hmm. follow the footprints in a transatlantic <laughs> accent <laughs> Do you see the problems with this like sort of true crime genre where there are people who cover modern modern investigations mm -hmm. and then try to try to encourage armchair detective work? Okay, so this gets at a conversation that has been ongoing for a long time about mass media in general, right? Right. And I think what's important to understand is that uh, it's it's what is known as mutually constitutive. So do you, right. So do you, do you understand what I mean by mutual? It means it's it's multidirectional, which means that uh, yes, there is real stuff that happens that influences art, right. and then art in turns reflect thing reflects things back to real life that get picked up and circulated and become real. Right. right. They become reified. Right. Uh, and that's another example of that. Right. Where this is something that's ongoing. We have an investigator actually trying to encourage people to engage with this case right and really i mean if you think about it it, it might actually be advantageous and right? that's that's really where i kind of draw my line is i think there is a real positive spin to it if you are bringing to the bring to like an audience a case from the backwoods of arkansas that wasn't going to get national media attention but is a really big case that needs help to be solved mm -hmm by putting it on a podcast that's a really positive thing you are bringing it out to people who maybe have the resources to solve it you are raising its profile right right but then it comes back to that that issue you brought up earlier of potentially re-traumatizing someone oh yeah and i know that they must have done their their real research and really reached out to these departments to try to like get permission to do mm -hmm. what they're doing but at the same time i feel like that's not quite enough to give you the right to be doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like it's, it, it's one of those very blurry lines when it comes to the true crime genre of like, how much can I actually encourage someone to help? Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure that there is a tension there between wanting to include other people in interviews so that it is more uh, of an equal power playing field. 
right and it is uh, less traumatizing to people and it does do the work of raising the profile of a particular case in a particular way that can actually uh, result in in more clues and and possibly closing the case right right um, there's probably a tension between that and trying to produce content on a schedule that right. someone can consume on their way to work right, right. Uh, and that's where good old late stage capitalism comes in <laughs> and complicates everything right right yeah do you think this is this is a funny question but do you think podcasters sign a contract with exactly right and do you think they're paid by the episode Ooh, i don't know that's an interesting that's an interesting capitalism talk that i'd have yeah we really i mean if we think about it for this episode we should have gotten karen and georgia in here we're we're too big for them actually <laughs> <laughs> sorry um all right so i mean i did have a couple more things that i wanted to throw at you you know i'm i'm sitting i'm theorizing i've okay. i've done zero research i've just sort of lived through this culture i hope you know you that know? you came in here with notes my notes have been in my head this entire time a, because I listen to so much. I just crime. assume that you write things on the inside of your eyelids. It's fine. They, I do. That's yeah. why I've been rubbing my glasses. I have to, I have to make sure they're visible. <laughs> All right. So, so follow, follow me with, follow with me on this. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think it's a stereotype at this point. Like people make jokes, like the people who listen to my favorite murder are the soccer moms. Right? Yeah. Right. So you, the, yeah, me, <laughs> um, People who listen to people who listen to my favorite murder are girl bosses. Like that's yeah, that's like I not mean, even sure. a pipeline. It's just a straight line for <laughs> sure. Um, it it definitely seems to embody the middle class white female culture, right? It it's it's sort of hinging on that kind of aesthetic. It, there it takes on drinks with friends at a wine bar sort of attitude. Yeah, literally the podcast started because they were at a party talking about the murder. documentary the staircase right about a particular true crime oh, about the the murder that was committed by an owl yes <laughs> actually okay so to, to, for listeners the theory in that murder is that the husband didn't shove his wife down the stairs she got some wounds because she was around attacked by an owl, attacked by an owl in the backyard by the pool or something and then fell down the stairs yeah so i mean there's there's lots of confusion around this case uh, there then, are also multiple documentaries if you want to watch there's one on netflix and one on hbo now. there is one on hbo and uh when my in-laws came over to watch it i kind of ruined it for them because <laughs> i had already listened to the podcast episode <laughs> Oh, the, the millions of podcast episodes there are about the staircase. For some reason, yeah. that's a case that's like drawn people. Yeah, but okay. So I want to I want to use that as like a little starting point. Okay, it's like wine with friends, like you just said, right? right. Uh, added onto that, we have the elements of of comedy, right? Mm -hmm. But then we also have this idea of like uh, learning to survive through storytelling. Right. Right. Okay. As, as I sort of started this this whole thing, are with, you right? are you about to tell me that my favorite murder is actually a educational podcast? No, <laughs> no. But I but you know it's got that TED Talk thing where you feel like you're learning something, right? Yeah, you feel like you're learning something. Yeah. That's, the, that's okay. the key word is feel. All right. So here here's basically basically uh, my line of logic on this: the way that I make sense of the incredible, like like the the really ridiculously effective rhetorical effectiveness of this podcast right um so we have stories of survival and we have stories about people who did not survive but you the listener uh, may learn something from what happened right right um and quite often just because of the way our culture works it's a heteronormative patriarchy or whatever 
Um, these victims and survivors quite often are women and the right. abusers quite often are male, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I see this podcast and how it became extremely popular in the rushing tidal wave of me too, of hashtag me too, right? And it was a time of being really concerned about uh, female empowerment and the dimensions of power uh, that women do and do not have in our culture, right? So I, I see that. And uh, to that, I also add not only the comedy element, but the community element, right? So in the, in the comedy element, in this podcast, as I said, we have women hosts being funny. That in itself is a cultural disruption, right? Because most of the time, uh, men are the funny ones, right? Uh, and it's only been in recent years that we've seen a lot of female comedians get a lot of good exposure, right? right. So that in itself is is a, 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 a disempowerment disruption, right? Right. But also the humor serves to insulate from traumas. So we have stories that are quite frequently about marginalized people or women, and we're treating those stories with humor, potentially right. to sort of insulate ourselves emotionally from those, from those events, right? Um, and at the end of it all, it serves to create community, create its own little bubble culture, right? right. So in that sense, in a, in a time, you know, since 2016, in a time of disruption in law, order, and government, uh, we have a podcast that creates community and sort of creates an emotional insulation right. <laughs> from a lot of instability. And it creates not only community, but solidarity with other victims Right. right. And other social projects going on in the country, like Karen in Georgia, when something like really traumatic happens in the country, they get on and they read statements about, you know, the, the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade and what happened in the 2016 right. election and all this stuff. Right. Um, you know, at a time of great personal risk and instability, we see this podcast forming community. Right. right. They're, they're going around the world doing these live shows where there is a close-knit community of, of people who come and they're very engaged you know there's a lot of like audience cheering and ooing and eyeing and gasping as they tell these stories right yeah i think that's a very interesting like way to view what has become just kind of a really really like key cultural point of our american culture i guess mm -hmm. because even if you're not super into crime like a true crime podcast appeals to just about everyone. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting. And like, if I'm forced to think theoretically about something I consume daily, like it really starts with my favorite murder in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's, that's really fascinating. What do you like the best about like my favorite murder style of true crime? And then what is like, as a follow-up question, what is something you hear in like a different true crime podcast that you wish would be implanted in, in their kind of style? Okay. Well, the thing that I love the most about my favorite murder has the least to do with crime. Right. And, and it's the most useless half hour, 45 minutes before they even start the episode. And, right. they're, and they're just chatting and telling jokes. Right. And anytime I have to be in the garage and do something by myself, 
I've got them on and I'm, I feel like I'm just hanging out with a couple of people. Right. You know, it makes it makes you know? lonely tasks a lot yeah. more social. Because to be honest, I don't care about true crime. Fair. Garrett, I don't. You, when I grew up, you know, you want to know what I was obsessed with? What little Bill was obsessed with? A little Belgian man who wore a bowler hat and had a cane. His name was Hercule Perrault. Like, that's right. I was I was obsessed with like cozy Agatha Christie locked door <laughs> mysteries, okay? I Fair. don't care about gritty true crime. I just don't, right? Fair. Right? So I like hearing Karen and Georgia hang out. That's what uh, drew me to the podcast in the first place. What element do I wish that they did? Funny voices. I love <laughs> I love Harry Zabrowski's voices on the last podcast of the left. That is, that's completely fair. Um, I guess to answer my own question, I also really love that community aspect, but I also love the way that they encourage people, if they like the story, to find out more from their sources or the podcast mm -hmm. they listen to. Because in that way, even beyond the Exactly Right Network, they are a great resource for smaller podcasts to gain notoriety mm -hmm. because of them. Like I said earlier, I started listening to the dollop. I started looking at the true crime charts while you were talking. I was trying to look up how many true crime podcasts there are now, like what the actual chart is too many. Yeah. There's, there's <laughs> 200 on the, I like the Apple podcast charts. And yeah. I know for a fact that not every single one of them that I've even ones that I've listened to fall into that top 200. Mm -hmm. Um, the one thing that I do really wish they would do brings me to shouting out a couple of the other podcasts that I listen to. Morbid takes on very much of their own, their, the MFM style, where they also have a bit of that true crime, or not true crime, that small talk at the beginning where they catch up, even mm -hmm. though they literally live so close to each other that they're always together. Yeah. Um, but Morbid takes on a little bit more of that educational aspect of the storytelling where they do a lot more research mm -hmm. into the um the the cases that they're covering they do multiple part episodes and i'm listening to them feeling like i'm just in like a conversation with two friends but i'm actually really getting quite a bit about the about like the case they're they're like that happy medium between mm -hmm. true crime garage where you're getting even though they're in a garage and they're just drinking beers they're still giving you insane amounts of of evidence and like all this like really gritty detail <laughs> and you're like wow i can't i don't believe you're drunk right now there's no way you are and you get that in between with um because they don't do as much small talk because that's not the point of their show yeah men don't do small talk no men, men talk men, about sports no men, it, it is a task-based culture right and morbid's that little in between where i wish mfm was a little more educational that's why i don't really listen to them that much anymore yeah, yeah. The other thing, and this would completely take them from their their style and their format, mm -hmm. but one of my new favorite true crime obsessions is the one I was telling you about earlier, the Murder Mile UK, Yeah, where his entire shtick, um, Michael, his entire shtick is that he's leading you on a walking tour of London, showing you Which the murders. Which is so cool. It is very cool. And because of that... Do you think you could fly to London and play the podcast and like walk the that's path? The, that's his intention. That's what he wants that you to do. That is so cool. And he, he used to actually give the physical walking tours. He no longer does, mm -hmm. but he used to give those. Um, but because of that idea, he starts with a scripted, like a scripted portion where he's telling the story. Karen and Georgia don't do scripts. 
you could tell. No, there's they, an outline. There's an outline, yeah. and it's never followed. Yeah. <laughs> but but he, his scripted portion also puts a lot on him as an editor because he produces this all by himself, mm-hmm. even though he's an A-cast podcast. But he, he produces it all by himself, and he adds all of these sound effects that make you feel like you're there. And that's a very different style of the genre where that's instead not, of... That's not insulating, you know what I mean? Right. That's making it real. That's making it real for you. Yeah. And whereas... Karen and Georgia, they're the the feeling you're getting from listening to them is you're part of a conversation. When mm-hmm. you listen to Michael and Murder Mile UK, you feel like you're witnessing an event, and it's sometimes. This is another way I categorize like true crime podcasts. Can I listen to them in the dark? Karen and Georgia, hundred percent, definitely could. <laughs> true Crime Garage, Murder Mile UK, um, those two really. Last podcast on the left, I will not listen to in the dark. <laughs> will not listen to in the dark. If it's dark outside, I'm like, I am literally going to be murdered. But I think that that's that's just kind of an interesting like way to view them. Is like things things that MFM did that made you want to listen to other yeah other true crime yeah. podcasts, and then yeah. what has made you like kind of stick with others? Because I've also listened to a bunch of different true crime podcasts mm-hmm. that I no longer listen to because I'm like, wow, this is an engaged. Different ones like Wine and Crime. Have you ever listened to that one? I did. I tried that one. Yeah, yeah. It it really put me on some some wines. I've I've well, tried great. multiple different wines. If but... you like that sort of thing, I right. Mean... My wine is a tiki drink, but whatever. Hey. <laughs> Little All right. umbrellas. <laughs> All right. Final final conclusion question. You answered it a little bit earlier. Okay. Why do you listen to MFM still, or why did you keep listening for so long? Mostly it's just pseudo hanging out with somebody. Right. Yeah. Why do you listen to true crime if you're not so interested in true crime? Because you listen because, to last podcast on the left too, and that's really a little bit less in that like community aspect. There's a lot of energy around that. You right. know? Lately, I've actually been listening to Blank Check with Griffin and David because it's sort of similar. It's a table of people who are chaotically talking about somebody's film career. Right. You know? Um, so do I really care about Stanley Kubrick's film career? No, no, otherwise I would have read a book about it a long time ago. Right. You know, you would have wrote your article on it already. Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> right. Um, but I do enjoy people being passionate about something and Even hearing them talk about it. Yeah. You know, that's why I listen to the BBC, like some of the BBC podcasts. They're so passionate about British things that I don't yeah. care about. I want I want something that's not actually part of my life. And I want to hear somebody else be passionate about it. Ultimately, right. that's what I go to podcasts for. Right. And I think right. that hits on a good point that I was about to bring up is I listen to true crime because it has nothing to do with what I do in life. Mm-hmm. And in that same way, it's also keeping me insulated. I'm, I'm learning how to not get murdered, <laughs> even though I still have that constant fear. <laughs> but all right. Okay, great. Hey, thanks for coming on. Oh, yeah. That's my pleasure. <laughs> this, this was fun. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to another episode of the only writing podcast you'll ever need brought to you by the Saginaw Valley State University Writing Center. If you enjoyed this episode with Garrett and Bill, please find us wherever you find your podcasts and please give us a follow. If you have any ideas for the podcast, please email us at wcpodcast at svsu.edu. We hope to see you again soon.